As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Steve Turney hosts a great podcast geared toward mental health marketers called The Boost. Steve, tell listeners what you cover on the show. The Boost is our podcast, and the tagline is Conversations with People Promoting Mental Health, and that's what it is. So it's marketers, company executives, therapists, and mental health advocates talking about what they're doing to move this industry and this important thing called mental health forward. Amazing. And where can people subscribe? I'm big on LinkedIn, so you can find us there, just uh, slash Steve Turney, or you can find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for The Boost wherever you get your podcasts. You heard him. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week, we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge, inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Well, hey now, and welcome to another exciting episode of Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to have you join me as we dive into the magical world of storytelling one more time. I want to remind you to please follow Uncorking a Story on all socials, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. You can find us at any of those places at Uncorking a Story. I'd love it in particular if you would subscribe to our YouTube channel as it's been a great growth vehicle for the show, but also a fun way for me to interact with the audience. Of course, uh, please rate, subscribe, and review Uncorking a Story wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, enough business out of the way. Today's guest is Ginger Pinholster. Ginger's first novel, City in a Forest, won a Gold Royal Palm Literary Award from the Florida Writers Association in 2020. She's a volunteer member of Florida's Volusia Turtle Patrol and a resident of Ponce Inlet near Daytona Beach. 
She joined me on a corking story to talk about her latest book, The Snakes of St. Augustine. I just love that title for so many reasons. And I also want to share with you, before we get into Ginger's interview, why I really wanted to have her on the show. And to do that, I need to go behind the scenes for a moment. The way most authors get on Uncorking a Story is that their publicist pitch me. Their publicist will pitch me, and if I find something interesting about the pitch, I welcome them on. And um, that's just the way it works. I, I don't necessarily deal with authors directly anymore. I really uh, usually only work with people who have publicists because I know that you know, those, you know, if you've hired a publicist or if your publishing company has uh, put a publicist um, in charge of publicity, then uh, there, there's probably something there. Um, but that's how it works. And I just want to share what got me about Ginger's story. The first thing is the name of her book. It's called The Snakes of St. Augustine. And I, it's not, you know, it's not like the real St. Augustine uh, was into snakes and it's, it's not a book about his snakes. I, I have no idea if he was into snakes. I'm not into snakes. I'm like Indiana Jones when it comes to snakes. I want to, to you know, steer clear of uh, anything that slithers. Um, but it's, it's about uh, the, the place in Florida, St. Augustine, that, that tourist destination. Um, I also learned from her bio that she's uh, into turtle conservation. You heard that when I, when I read her introduction. Now, about halfway through this interview, I share just what those two things have in common in my life, snakes and uh, turtle conservation. And when you hear it, you'll understand just why I needed to have Ginger on my show. Um, another thing I wanted to share about Ginger's story is how important uh, her writing group is to her. And you know, there's a misconception out there that writing a book is a solitary process. And of course, writing a book you know, does involve a lot of, of, of alone time. But it's not something that necessarily happens in a vacuum, especially with very successful authors. Ginger underscores the importance of collaborating with other authors who can challenge you, push you, and encourage you to write your best stuff. And I also love how Ginger found her writing group. So please listen for that story. It's a great one. Uh, and I hope it does inspire you. I want to remind you that my goal through this podcast is to help make you a better writer, no matter where you are on your writing journey. And that's your lesson for today. Research and find a writing group. You will not regret it. Now, let's uncork Ginger's story. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Ginger Pinholster. Thank you so much for having me. It's quite an honor. Oh, it's it's the honor is is absolutely all mine, Ginger. Um, but I'm curious. I always like to begin uh, from the very beginning of a writer's story. So tell me, where does your story as an author begin, Ginger? Well... What I always like to say is that good writing begins with voracious reading. There's a great quote I love by the author Lisa C. And she says, read a thousand books and your words will flow like a river. And so that's pretty much how it began. For me, I was addicted to reading as a kid. Um, and in particular, the Nancy Drew mystery series, because she was a smart girl who was solving problems and uh, she had kind of the same hair color as me. So <laughs> I love to read those books. And so the first few things that I wrote were, uh, let's just say highly derivative of the Nancy Drew mystery series. Um, you know, things like a, a girl is having to save the town from a ghost and that sort of thing. Um, and so from there, I just, you know, continued to try and work on the craft pretty deliberately and wound up going to uh, Ecker College here in Florida to their creative writing program, where I studied with the poet Peter Meinke 
and the novelist uh, Sterling Watson. And then my life began and I started uh, going to a day job uh, for many years and didn't get to graduate school until I was in middle age and went to Queens University of Charlotte to their uh, MFA program. And at that point, I wrote the basis for my first novel, City in a Forest. So what was that day job? I worked for about 20 years in Washington, D.C. as their chief communications officer uh, for a nonprofit that publishes the journal Science. And so it was science writing, science communication primarily. So you were still you were kind of adjacent to the field that you eventually wanted to, to be in in terms of in terms of writing. I mean, communications, I'm sure you had to do a fair amount of writing for for that gig. Uh, maybe it wasn't the writing that, uh, you know, you felt called to do on a deeper level, but uh, it was at least adjacent. You know, it, you, it's exactly. not like you were working as an accountant or something. Right. That's true. Uh, and. You know, I will say science writing is a little bit like creative writing in that you're sort of trying to solve a puzzle a lot of times if you're trying to decipher someone's peer-reviewed research paper so that it's accessible and understandable to a lay reader. Uh, that's a little bit like sort of trying to solve a plot uh, twist in a novel. It's a, sure. it's a puzzle, if you will. So that, that helped to set me up. And I had a wonderful, wonderful mentor uh, at that organization, the AAAS, Dr. Alan Leshner. And he was one who said, you need to get your graduate degree. You need to go ahead and continue growing. Uh, and I think it's wonderful when we have good people in our lives like that who, who, who sort of um, egg us on a little bit. Yeah, we all need mentors, especially as writers. I think it's, it's an incredibly important you know, not, not only to have somebody who's encouraging you to follow a dream or, or you know, recognizes something in you that needs a little bit of water and sunshine, but who um, can show you the way a little bit, too. I think mentors are extremely important and, and sometimes few and far between. Absolutely. I've been very fortunate. Um, and I would say to writers who are aspiring, if you don't have one yet, look around you and see who you admire. And reach out to them for support. So I have to ask Ginger, are you a Florida native? I'm not. I, I uh, was raised in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, before it became such a huge um, city. It was still kind of a big, small town at that point. Um, and I came to college undergraduate in, in Florida, spent most of my adult life in D.C., uh, a little short stint in Delaware, and then back down the East Coast to Florida again, finally. There you go. So I've back. been, yeah, I've been here at a university in Daytona Beach in Bree Riddle for the last seven years or so, also doing um, writing for them. Yeah, very, very good. That was one of the schools that I uh, was investigating when, um, when I was in high school. I wanted to be a pilot. Oh, oh good for and, you. Uh, but I, I, never, I never went down that path. Um, but, There's still uh, time, Michael. There's still time. <laughs> well, I, I, it's what I say. So I've got three kids. We have triplets. Um, they are finishing college right now. So they'll be done this May. Good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Uh, they'll be done in May. And that's when I say I can take, you know, when they're done, then I can start something else again. Um, yes. So I have yes, a few things of what that might be. So. Your next adventures. Well, congratulations on getting three kids through school. Well, it's, you know, we're, you know, I like to say like we're at like, Maybe the thirty-yard line right now at this point in time. So when, when they all look, 
You still look so youthful, though. It's- well, you know, it's it's pond. <laughs> I used to work on the ponds brand when I worked at Unilever, so I just you know really? used that. To just it just. <laughs> I mean, okay. the years come off when you use that stuff. It's okay. Good to know. <laughs> um, well, I, I want to talk about. Uh, we certainly want to talk about Snakes of Saint Augustine. I do want to talk about the first novel, though, because I'm curious as to what your journey was with that, um, and then what sort of prompted you to to start writing it. Right. Okay. So the first book was Sitting in a Forest, and as I said, it's a permutation of my graduate school thesis. Uh, basically. And it's set in Atlanta. So it's sort of my homage to my hometown. And the basic plot is that two women who have childhood connections are fighting to save this pristine sort of magical forest that's hidden in the heart of the city. But there's an unscrupulous developer who is threatening to flatten Silver Park. So these women have to um, overcome him as an obstacle. Um, And I guess I, what I um, worked on mainly in that book was the setting. So I try to make the setting as immersive as possible uh, so that the reader would imagine that forest, imagine walking through it, the leaves crackling under their feet, the smells, the sounds and everything. Um, and I think a lot of Southern fiction authors do this. I'm not exactly sure why, but perhaps it's because we want to preserve those cherished childhood places, at least in our mind's eye. Uh, Atlanta, sort of a little interesting factoid, when I was a teenager in the 1970s, Atlanta for a short period of time was the fastest growing urban settlement on the planet. And so you could really see in real time the tree canopy disappearing. And I think that's what subconsciously motivated this first book. What, what did you learn about yourself during the writing process of that first book? Um, you know, I know, you know, usually with a first book, there's there's a steep learning curve, you know, where you're kind of learning the craft of writing long form fiction. But there's also a lot you learn about yourself. And I'm curious if you could talk about actually both of those. Well, let's see. What did I learn about the craft? First of all, oh, wow. <laughs> where do I begin? I was working on the book for about 10 years. Um, So every time I write a book, I'm now on my third. I'm cutting the time required to complete it by half. So 10 years, five years, now I'm at two and a half. (laughs) But I I didn't understand the fundamental nature of story, which is rooted in conflict. I didn't understand that uh, your protagonist needs to have something that they urgently want and will do anything to get because that motivation drives the plot, drives the story. And once I got that, then it became so much easier. But then I also realized that this outline that I had carefully prepared in advance had nothing to do with my protagonist's um, motivation. So <laughs> I didn't really start all over. Um, the book started off with a uh, protagonist who had three sisters, which I do in real life, uh, they were all killed off during revisions um, so that it was a much cleaner, easier to follow story. Um, and as far as um, what I learned about myself, I I would just say that I learned that I am a really flowery writer and that was uh, something I'm, I had to overcome. So too many metaphors, too many similes. 
too much yeah. description. Yes, I'm trying to make this an immersive setting, but you can get carried away. And I think you'll see that in this graduate thesis effort. Yeah. Does that answer uh, your question? It, it absolutely answers my question. Absolutely answers my question. Thank you uh, very much for that. Um, and I appreciate you uh, sort of addressing part of your response to uh, uh, aspiring authors, because there are a number of uh, aspiring authors who listen to this. And I try to make this a, a masterclass for, uh, for, I mean, really anybody who's interested in, in writing, but, um, you know, those who are, are sort of early in the game, so to speak. Um, yeah, I think don't give up. <laughs> That's the yeah. main thing. Don't give up. It's such a long journey. It really, really is. Yeah. In, in that ways, it's, it's, it's much more, I always like to say it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. That's um, right. Exactly right. And I think this concept of talent, you have to have talent to be an author, is so harmful because there are a lot of fresh, diverse voices out there. Um, who don't get to go to an MFA program. And really, they don't realize it's it's just a craft, like carpentry, like playing the guitar or the piano. You have to learn the techniques and the elements and practice. That's really all it is. Nothing to do with some innate ability, Yeah, in my I, opinion. I, in my I, opinion. I, I, I use the, um, like a running, you know, uh, analogy because, you know, if any, I believe anybody can run a marathon. Um, all it takes is commitment, persistence, um, and then, you know, carving out a little bit of time every day just to, to build up your fitness level. And, and even more important than building up like your physical fitness is building up your mental fitness. Right. And, you know, you don't necessarily say I'm going to run a marathon and then go out and run a marathon. You know, you start off with, you know, walking and then walk running. And then maybe you build up to running a 5K and a 10K and, you know, a half marathon. But you don't you don't set out, you know, with the trying to achieve your ultimate goal right away. I think the same thing is true with writing. You know, don't necessarily set out to write that 75, 85, hundred thousand dollar word, uh, hundred thousand word manuscript. Yeah. You know, as your first goal, start with an article, start with an essay, start with a short story and build up your writing muscles, you know, build up your writing fitness and um, that'll serve you well. Yes. And make contacts in the writing community. I can't say enough about the importance of my writing group, particularly with Snakes of St. Augustine, the second novel. If it weren't for them, I would never have gotten through the muddy middle. I did get stuck in the middle as a lot of authors do. And without that group, asking me questions, asking me, what if this happened? What if that were to happen? I would not have been able to 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 continue. I don't think so. Make contacts, and that and that's where being vulnerable really you know comes into play because you're exposing you know your early work to people, and you know not everything and, and hopefully at that stage not everything is glowing praise because it shouldn't be. Um, right. People should be pushing you if they're really interested in your story and you. They should be pushing you a little bit more. And you have to be open to to that, and you have to be open to criticism because it's going to come. You know, it's either going to come early on and make it better, or it's going to come much later on in, in the form of a review, and you know, it might take a little wind out of your sails. So, absolutely, yes, it's not just a cheerleading group, but really a critique group. How did you find your your writing group? I, <laughs> after I published City in a Forest. I was trying to get the local newspaper 
to write about it, of course, I was trying to generate some PR for myself. And I couldn't get the local newspaper to respond to my emails. So I went over there with a copy for the managing editor at the time and, and left it with the receptionist with a little handwritten note. And he called me and said, this is great. And by the way, we have a writing group and we need someone uh, to fill up a vacant seat. So I went to the first uh, meeting of it and just really hit it off with this particular group of folks. That's great. Serendipity, in other words. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there are, I, I believe that, the, you know, more and more days I spend here uh, on this planet, <laughs> I, I believe in um, that there are, are no such thing as coincidences. And that's right. And, and we are given yeah. opportunities. Um, and yes. uh, kudos to you for taking that. One of the one of the folks in the writing group was uh, Jenny Aaron Smith, who wrote a wonderful book called Stolen World, a nonfiction uh, book about um, reptile trafficking, basically, um, in the 80s, I think. And so she knew about snakes. So that was quite fortuitous as well as I was writing Snakes of St. Augustine. Well, speaking of Snakes of St. Augustine, what can you share with us about your latest book? Okay, well, I like to describe it as an unconventional love story served up with a large side of Florida weirdness. That's my log line. And then more deeply, it's uh, about a woman struggling to find her neurodivergent brother, while at the same time, an exhausted police officer is searching for these stolen snakes. So these two storylines are going to come into collision uh, by the uh, middle third quarter of the book. Um, and it's also a love story. There's a love story embedded in it. Um, more fundamentally, it takes a look at people who are living on the margins and the importance of compassion toward those people and the value of community. Um, one of the characters in the book, Jazz, is a community college student who is unhoused and he has a neurological difference. So um, he, he's reflecting at one point, he's watching people walk by him without making eye contact. And he says that he feels like a homeless, potentially dangerous ghost, out of focus and wavy around the edges. And so he's describing, in other words, that sensation of invisibility that people can have when they are not part of the community, when they're living on the margins. So I'm hoping that people that read this book will take a fresh look at people like jazz and consider you know how similar we all are and that we're all worthy of inclusion that's sort of yeah. the underlying theme if you will yeah no that's that's great and, and you know I, I hear you talking about snakes and in florida and i i, I do want to share something personal um my so i grew up in florida i grew up in plantation florida and oh, wow. um which is uh, just west of Fort Lauderdale. So I was yeah. born there in the 70s. I have two older siblings. They were born in New York, and my parents moved in the late 60s. So um, my older brother, who who passed away this summer, um, was very um, – he, he was a fascinating guy. He was he had some interesting hobbies, let's say. And, and one of those hobbies was catching snakes in Florida. And he, he would catch these snakes, and he, he had them in like a mailbag – that he kept in our shed. My father, my father didn't know this. So my father goes in the shed to get some gardening tools or whatever. And he sees this mailbag 
opens it and then jumps 500 feet in the air because <laughs> you know, all these snakes are in there. But when you, um, when I was reading, you know, about, about you and about this book in Florida and snakes, I immediately went right to my brother. Sure. Um, and, and the other thing that I'll share is, you know, you know, and I, I do, I do want you to talk about, um, your work with turtles because after, after my brother passed away, I would spend a lot of time in, in this park near his house where he liked to go for, for walks. And there is a pond in this park where I would just kind of sit, you know, sit on a bench and just like, you know, just like think of him and talk to him and then do weird stuff. And, and I noticed over time that there was a family of turtles that live in this pond. And I found myself going to this pond almost every day just to see the turtles. And, you know, and, and they, they little skittish creatures, you know, they don't yeah, necessarily sliders. love humans so much, but there was, I call her mama turtle, this really, really big turtle. And one day she just like saw her swimming across the pond over towards my direction. And she just kind of was just hanging out there with me. And I was just yeah. hanging out there with her. So Aww. when I'm reading, you know, your background and I see this about turtles and I see this about snakes, I immediately call my sister-in-law, uh, you know, my, my brother's wife. And I say, Carolyn, you're never going to believe this. I am talking to somebody this Friday who not only is involved with turtles, but she's got this thing with snakes. <laughs> about snakes. Oh, I'm, gl- I'm glad it resonated with you. I'm sorry for the loss of your brother. Oh, thank you very much. That's yes, hard. It's, it's very it's, hard. And, and I lost my brother, too, which is part of the basis of this book, of course. Oh, interesting. So, interesting. Um, so yeah, so did, maybe how- he was trying to give you a message by sending the mama turtle over there to say hello to you. Per, perhaps I, I I do believe in such things. Um, I do. Usually he he comes as a hummingbird, but uh, maybe that day he was a turtle. Mm-hmm. Um, how did your brother's uh, life and, and passing inform this book? Yeah. Well, you know, as novelists, we write things and we don't really analyze them at the time. But then, if when you're finished with the story, you can look at it and think, oh, okay, that's where that came from. <laughs> Um, I did lose my brother. It was quite a long time ago, though, 2004. Um, He had a constellation of neurodivergent conditions. He had learning disabilities. I believe he was possibly on the spectrum. He he couldn't communicate very well. Um, He had anxiety and depression. And in the end, he had substance abuse issues. And he he ended his life. Um, So I was perhaps subconsciously thinking about him and thinking about um, the importance of embracing those people that are struggling like that. Um, And so that, that kind of underpins the character that I wrote in this book, Gethin, who's the brother of the protagonist. And he goes missing at the same time that these snakes are stolen. Um, And there's a whole search for him. That's part of the mystery in the book. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry to hear about your brother and the struggles he had in life. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, beautiful thing also that you're, you're able to, to um, take some inspiration from his life and, and those struggles and, you know, honor, I guess, honor him in some way. That's right. Um, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's a, a that's that's the magic of writing, isn't it? We have these um, these platforms we can use to uh, do some very good things with. Um, Absolutely, agreed. 
Um, well, so yeah, you asked me about turtles. I've been on Volusia Turtle yeah. Patrol here uh, south of Daytona Beach for about six years now. And so I'm pretty hardcore into it, as my friends will tell you. <laughs> and what we do is we get up at the crack of dawn, we jump in a truck or on an ATV, depending on the route, drive up and down looking for our sea turtle tracks. When we find a nest, we stake it out with a protective barrier. We monitor every nest every morning. And then uh, once the turtles emerge, we excavate it to assess reproductive success. And those data help conservation scientists develop better policies to further protect the species. How did you it's get involved? In it's a ton of fun. <laughs> I, I can imagine. I just love turtles. Yeah. I love herpetology in general, and I don't know why, Michael. I have a little snake called Lemony Stitches, a little ball python that has yellow stitching on its back, um, and a couple of little Florida box turtles as well. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I I will. I am one of those people who are afraid of snakes. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if it's you know the Catholic upbringing or what, but uh, you know, the snakes as a species certainly got a bad rap. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, no, yeah. that's totally, totally natural. That fear is probably evolutionary for yeah. sure. And, you know, the title of this book, Snake of, Snakes of St. Augustine, is a metaphor because um, we, we fear snakes because we misunderstand them frequently. We, we don't know the difference between a scarlet king snake, which is harmless, and a venomous coral snake. And so we misunderstand their behavior, so we fear them. And we might be so fearful we attack all of them or run away. Um, and in the same way, people who have differences may have behaviors that we don't understand immediately. So we may feel fear or um, have different reactions to them. But yeah. the little factoid I always point to is that there are 44, at least 44 native species of snakes in Florida, and only six of them are actually venomous. So you usually know, that, there's not danger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, it's the uh, same way for people with neurodiversity. Um, we, we hear about really scary things in the media that happen, the rare events that happen. But the vast majority of people with these conditions are no threat to other people. And in fact, uh, statistically, they're about three times more likely to suffer violent crime than the general population because people have a variety of responses to them. Um, for instance, someone speaking in, in, in a poetry kind of way, making odd associations, somebody might um, think they're funny or they might think you're trying to punk me and that makes them mad or they might be afraid thinking this person may be a danger to me. So that's the connection. That's the underlying metaphor in this book. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's beautiful, and I, I have to say, I do hear the title "Snakes of Saint Augustine," and yeah, I don't necessarily go to to actually snakes. I think of like, you know, obnoxious. <laughs> well, I think of like obnoxious tourists and and maybe some land developers or something like. Oh, that. Oh yeah, well, Saint but Augustine. That's, that's right. my inner Carl Hyacin speaking. I think. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, uh, I know you live in Florida now. You spent a fair amount of time there. 
Um, you know, talk to me about being being a Floridian and writing about Florida because it's a place that I, I certainly, you know, set a lot of stories uh, in as well. Um, I I love Florida. It is again my home state, and um, I, I definitely see the wackiness. Don't get me wrong, um, but I, I have a you know I get off the plane at Fort Lauderdale Airport, and I immediately feel at home. So I'm curious as to what what being a Floridian means to you. Yeah, well, there's so much fodder for fiction, isn't there? And you as an author know that too. I mean, where else? I mean, you hear all the Florida man stories, right? The guy that's trying to hold up a liquor store with a baby alligator or um, things like that. Flamingos suddenly appearing in in North Florida. Um, An alligator walking in the surf of the ocean in Ormond Beach. Uh, a, A colony of monkeys in Silver Park that's real. <laughs> and they'll jump over your boat across the river. Um, so there's so many strange, odd things associated with the natural world here um, that, that it really does stimulate the imagination. And so part of my writing process is that if I'm sitting at the computer and I'm feeling restless, I'll jump on my bike with my little notepad and a pen, go down to the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse Park, where there is a neat uh, overlook tower that's above the marshes and the inlet. And you can see all kinds of birds and raccoons and turtles. And so if there are no kids up there being juvenile delinquents at the time, then I'll sit up there and write a, a whole scene out longhand because I'm immersed in that environment. So I'm, I'm really enriched by it as I'm writing. And I did try and use two types of Florida settings in this book, the old Florida, sort of a dense saw palmetto jungles, and what I call the Disney Florida, the the tourism economy, um, arcades and uh, amusements and that sort of thing. Both of those I encounter every single day in my life. (laughs) And it's such an odd dichotomy, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, you, they, they need each other, though. I mean, they um, do, I guess you definitely need the tourists because uh, there, there's a reason why Florida has no state income tax. Um, that's right. That's I right. think that's, and, that, that's a big thing to do with it. Well, and it's interesting. The reason that we can drive on the beach in Daytona Beach is because you have a turtle patrol and a marine science center here for turtle rehabilitation. So at some point there was a federal lawsuit in Volusia County said, hold on, we can, we can uh, protect the turtles and do this tourism thing at the same time. We're going to, we're going to send the turtle patrol out every single morning. So they're connected inextricably for sure. Yeah. Very good. Well, uh, you know, Ginger, one of the ways I also like to get to know my guests is to ask them a couple of questions about pop culture. Now don't get nervous. This this is not, uh, there's no right or wrong here. Um, but I'm curious, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? Uh, well, I talked about reading the Nancy Drew Mystery Series, and I was quite the addict there. Um, you know, I'm old enough, Michael. <laughs> One of my first experiences with TV was my mom waking me up to watch that first step on the moon in 1969. I was nine years old at that time. Mm. And it was a black and white TV with, you know, rabbit ears with tin foil on the top and so on. 
Um, but I guess when I was a little bit older, uh, Dark Shadows, remember that? Oh, absolutely remember that, yeah. Really, so scary, Quentin and all of that. Um, you know, and I think there's some unfortunate forays onto the Brady Bunch series and things like that. You know, I have to say the Brady Bunch, when I ask authors this question, does come up quite a bit. There's a couple of usual suspects. Brady yeah. Bunch is, is usually there. And I, I'm trying to understand it because I my, my wife is like a, a Brady Bunch um, savant. Like she knows the ins and outs <laughs> of the Brady Bunch. And, I, you know, I wonder if it's just like this, like blended family and it's 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 like all the different personalities and you know this idyllic almost idyllic life where the the biggest thing you got to worry about is you know breaking um you know a, a lamp in the house because you were playing ball or, <laughs> i'm trying to yeah. pinpoint it because i i never loved the brady bunch like it wasn't like necessarily my favorite show um mm -hmm. now if you had said gilligan's island we could have a long discussion about that but um yeah what's well, your take so on the brady for me, I guess the deeper answer would be that period of time was after the era when couples stayed together no matter what. So we were in an era where a lot of us came from families where the parents had divorced. And in this case, the family had somehow still made that a loving outcome. That's the deeper answer. For me, the other answer is, come on, Greg was hot. Let's be honest. So we had to tune in. Well, I'm sure Barry Williams, if you're listening, um, <laughs> his, his ears are, or if he's not listening, his ears are ringing. That's, that's yeah, for sure. There you go. Uh, what about music? What'd you like listening to? You know, I was um, not just a fan of Joni Mitchell, but I followed her around to different concerts and knew how to play all of her songs and all the lyrics to all of her songs. So, uh, you know, it was just a sort of, melancholy teen girl kind of thing. Uh, that's what I did. Um, what else? The Allman Brothers were big where I grew up, of course. Um, and you'd occasionally see them around town or at a picnic. So a lot of that. Yeah, I got to see Greg Allman. Oh, God, this is probably going back 20, 25 years. He came through Connecticut. I live in a town called Stanford. And he came to our theater downtown and um, had this young kid with him named Derek Trucks, who was just starting out at the time, who is mm -hmm. now like a um, a superstar in terms of blues right. guitar. Um, right. Right. But uh, man, what uh, great yeah. music and a huge loss. Um, yeah, oh, absolutely. Frank Zappa, the Winter Brothers, all those Love folks. Zappa. Love Zappa. <laughs> I, you know, yeah, I was a little too young um, to have seen Zappa live when he was, you know, obviously in his heyday. But he would have been somebody I would love to have seen, yeah. um, or at least had a conversation with. You know, he seemed like oh, a fast, yeah. intelligent guy, um, and a wonderful musician. Wonderful for musician, sure. for sure, brilliant. Um, in terms of um, writing and reading, do do you have a favorite place where you like to write? I'm, I'm sitting in it right now in my little home office. Um, but as I said, I, I love to go out to the marsh down at the point here, the Ponce Inlet Jetty, because I'm not, my imagination is not being interrupted by electronics. That's really a danger for writers. Um, so I can be deep into my imagination, into a scene, and suddenly get a ping from my boss, someone I can't ignore. And, 
and it takes me right out of it. And so to the extent that aspiring writers can find some place where that is not happening to them, I think it will be helpful. Yeah. What about a favorite place to read? In my room, right, uh, sitting next to my box turtles and my little snake. I have a couple of habitats in my bedroom. <laughs> so, yeah, we hang out together. And um, right now I'm reading a book uh, by Archie Carr, who is a great conservationist, who you probably know about the Archie Carr um, Nature Preserve down near Melbourne. Um, which is I've, I've huge, certainly heard of it, yeah. Huge turtle nesting uh, spot. And so Archie Carr wrote this book called The Windward Road, which is kind of analogous to Rachel Carson's The Silent Spring. Um, and so I finally got around to ordering that book, and I'm, I'm about 40 pages into it now, really enjoying it. Very cool. And uh, the last question is always the hardest for some people, maybe not you, Ginger, but if you could write a letter to your younger self. What would you tell the younger Ginger? Um, what kind of words of advice would you give your younger self if you had the ability to do so? You're going to make me choke up now, Michael. It's like the Oprah show. <laughs> um, I would say that you can do it. I really struggled with a profound lack of self-confidence. Um, and I, I believed that harmful myth that you have to have some magical talent um, I had a teacher at one point who uh, dismissed my writing as not serious because he said, serious fiction is about men going to war and men uh, getting in battles with other men. You know, he was quite, he believed this. And I thought, oh, my stories about human relationships are meaningless. Um, and so I would tell myself that um, you have value and, you can do this and you can learn the skills you need to know in order to complete a novel because anybody can. What a, what a, I'm sorry, what a jerky comment for, for somebody to make to you. Um, it was back in the day, you know, I, back in the still, day. I mean, still look, I, <laughs> I you know, I, I think about that. I'm like, would he have said that to Charles Dickens when he was handing, you know, when he was preparing a Christmas Carol, you know, are there <laughs> men going to war in that, you know, well, just male protagonists. I think that's what he had in his mind is important books, serious literature. Well, um, and I was writing about, you know, families and love, love stories and things like that. No, just unimportant things like that. Family right. life. Yeah. So, well, I really enjoyed chatting with you. I likewise, Ginger. Um, I would just love to give you the opportunity to let uh, the audience know how they can connect with you. So do you have a website or any social media handles you can share? Yes, I'm all over Google. All you need to do is Google my name. I have a website. It's just gingerpinholster.com. I have a TikTok, which is Parker by the Sea. Um, I have an Instagram, which is gingepin and various other platforms that folks can find pretty easily. I will put all of those links in our show notes, as well as links to where they can buy the book, um, which of thank course you. is Snakes of St. Augustine. So uh, Ginger Pinholster, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you so much, Michael. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, 
go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe.